Welcome to the new episode of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. We are back after a fortnight's break. I'm Barney Hoskins. I'm sitting here with my colleague, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And we are sitting here with our very special guest, David Toop. Welcome. Thank you, Barney. <laughs> Delighted to have you on the podcast, David. And um, the main sort of reason we're talking about this is that you have a new book out. This is your second new book this year. So it's it's turning out to be quite a year for you. The new book is called Inflamed Invisible, Collected Writings on Art and Sound, 1976 to 2018. And it's pretty highfalutin, highbrow stuff <laughs> <laughs> by, by, our, by our general standards. That's um, a condemnation um, if ever there was one. Well, uh, certainly not meant to sound like that. <laughs> um, I mean, you, even when you're writing about the most arcane things, you're a very engaging writer, and that's what I've thought yeah. for many, many years. Thank you. The previous book, which came out in the spring, is a more autobiographical mm-hmm. um, production, Flutter Echo, Living Within Sound, which includes great pictures of you with long flowing hair playing mm-hmm. the flute mm-hmm. in about 1973 yeah, yeah, yeah. so i mean obviously it was against the law not to not to be <laughs> playing the flute and have long hair then I, I, i'm sure it was i really am genuinely not sure where to start with you you've had such an extraordinary career you've done so many different things you've written incredible books you've made lots of records and collaborated with fascinating people i mean where would you like to start given what you know, Rocks Back Pages is about. Tell us about where you came into music. Where I came into music? Well, I guess fascination with music from a young age. And uh, I had some kind of lucky breaks, I guess. My, I had an aunt who went to America in the 1950s in pursuit of a man. Wow. Which turned out to be a catastrophe, <laughs> <laughs> as you could imagine. But she came back with a lot of 78 RPM records of rock and roll and rhythm and blues and a little bit of jazz. And, you know, in I was born in 49, so I guess I was younger than 10 then, and I used to listen to these records when we went round to my grandparents. She was my mum's stepsister. And, you know, it's Little Richard, Fats Domino, but even obscure things like Sugar Child Robinson, Numbers Boogie, George Shearing Quintet and stuff like that. So, you know, that music completely knocked me out. Yeah, yeah. Well, actual 78 from America, it gives you a kind of jump start on a totally. lot of writers yeah. for a stuff. I mean, yeah, that, that's yeah. really the kind of crucible of yeah. the whole and thing, isn't it? I think, you know, that was one of the places where my love of African-American music yeah. was really born. So, yeah, that was an important thing. And, and, you know, just... I had an older sister, so she took me with her friends to see Blackboard Jungle, for example. Yeah. You know, And exposure to rock and roll made me think, that's what I want to do play guitar, be a rock and roll singer. Didn't quite happen. (laughs) (laughs) Happened in an unusual way. Happened in an unusual way, that's right, yeah, yeah. But, you know, that passion for the music, I suppose, began to grow around that time. And and then twangy guitar music, you know, the shadows and the ventures and that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Yes. Playing guitar from around, well... Contemporaneously, I suppose, you know, with that phase, I mean, we're talking late 50s to 61, maybe, was the peak of that. Mm. Records like Apache, Mm -hmm. that was the first tune I learned to play. But I guess there was an odd, almost fatal mixture of, you know, wanting to play, but thinking about this stuff as well, you know, and the thinking about it leads down that path of ending up writing about it. Yeah. Why do you think you started to think about music in the pretty unusual way that that you have and quite complex, sophisticated way that you thought about sound, performance, music? Did, Did art school have anything to do with that? I mean, well, I don't know. I mean, we're kind of unknowable to ourselves in a way. And, 
you know, I was an odd child in the sense that I was interested in a lot of things, but my parents were not cultured people at all. You know, they were low and middle class, conservative, and not really interested in culture beyond my dad liked military music. <laughs> you know, my mum was a bit more open, you know, she liked dance bands and things like that. But, you know, there wasn't anything with which to orientate myself. So you become an autodidact yeah. with all the pluses and minuses of that. And But why I thought about stuff, I have no idea. Art school certainly was, you know, it's, it was a very open education in the 1960s. Which art school did you go to? I went to Hornsey in 1967, oh, yeah. and uh, there was a famous student occupation That's in 68, right, yes, absolutely. which I got involved in, and which was an education in itself. Yeah. I mean, I think I learnt more from that experience than I did about the actual, you know, drawing vegetables or whatever of the course. You learn self-determination. You learn how to do things yourself and how to organise. And that became incredibly useful when I got involved in very marginal music where you had to do things yourself. What led you from sort of your R&B rock and roll roots into marginal music, into free improvisation, into experimental music. Was What was that process? I mean, Well, I was working at the Roundhouse uh, because I didn't... Uh, I had a slightly convoluted art school career and I was trying to do a year without a grant and I was working at the Roundhouse mm. to make some money, working just working in the bar and yeah. doing dog's body stuff and we started doing these jam sessions at night and that's where I met my musical partner Paul Burwell, a drummer yeah. and What were you playing in those jams? Guitar yeah. Guitar, it was mostly, still, yeah, still yeah. guitar yeah. And you know, we were trying to play this kind of free rock music but nope <laughs> <laughs> There weren't many takers Yeah, we get these musicians coming playing with us and they'd stick it out for one or two sessions and they'd vanish and <laughs> Yeah, in the end, we found ourselves doing these improvisation workshops with John Stevens of Spontaneous Music Ensemble in 1971 at Ealing College. And John gave us our first gig at the Little Theatre Club. And so, you know, we moved, we sort of flowed into the improvised music scene because the free rock just wasn't working out. Which is a great shame because I think, in a way, it's something which is now coming back in. Oh, absolutely, really yeah. Were you involved in London Musicians Co-op? I take yeah, you were, yeah, yeah, we were, yeah, one of the founder members and also involved with Music's magazine, which was, you know, the independently produced magazine for that scene, really. So mm, that, was, yeah. that was one of my introductions to writing and getting writing published, but also learning about editing. I often used to typeset the magazine. You know, the whole process. Yeah, yeah. It's very useful yeah. education. You've subsequently worked, uh, probably most famous than Brian Eno, you've, you've worked with, but a, a whole range of very interesting musicians. I think the first, was the first sort of collaborator in terms of recordings, was that Max Eastley? The first Recording collaboration I did, well, actually not the first, because I learned about the first very recently, which was just me playing guitar in this sort of kind of psychedelic band. But I worked with a singer-songwriter called Simon Finn. Okay. And that came out in the early 70s on the Mushroom label. Okay, yeah. And that sort of developed a, a second and a third and a fourth life. You know, it was being bootlegged in Japan and... I mean, it's crazy, actually. I'd almost forgotten about it, but it's been reissued a number of times, re- actually very recently, in a Californian label. So, you know, that kind of goes on and on, that record, and that was a weird one in, in that, you know, Simon was a very capable singer-songwriter, but, you know, I was given carte blanche to experiment in the studio. And I always say to him, well, I ruined your record. And he always (laughs) says, well, no, if you hadn't done all that weird stuff, nobody would remember my record. So So what? Well, yeah, I mean, I listened to it, back to it, and I'm horrified at some of my playing. But, you know, it was 
it was a chance to experiment with, you know, a very primitive kind of yeah. arranging. And again, learning how, I mean, the, the engineer, the producer was Vic Keery, a guy who'd kind of taken over from Joe Meek. Uh, wherever it was, Lanzone Studios, and and you know a wonderful engineer, very experimental. Really? Yeah. And so in all these situations, you're learning how things work. Mm. You know, you're not just coming in and being a functionary and and going away. You're you're learning the mechanics of the stuff, and I've always found that really important. S- some people listening to this, if there's anyone out there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, can this be the same David Toop who interviewed Bross for The Face? <laughs> I'm going to tell you, yes. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we will move on to your writing. Uh, we'll get to Bross in a moment. <laughs> you said before we started recording, my proudest achievement. Um, I did see a tongue in the cheek. But um, in some of the things, the, the interviews that you've done, you talk about your first book, The Rap Attack, and how, in a sense, that you know, that made you suddenly you were an author you said yeah. and you but you don't often mention collusion magazine which we've got a copy of up there mm. um that's not doesn't get a mention in your on your wikipedia page for example you were writing before you pitched the idea of what really was the first book about rap hip-hop i was i'd, I'd actually written a column in timeout in the mid 70s okay um, well, i didn't on, even know that what used to be called ethnic music records. Okay. I was asked if I would write this column. And I also wrote about Balinese music in Time Out. That was a cover feature. Gosh. Amazingly. Because it's uh, very hard to find Time Out. It's so, real, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. We know yeah. there was a lot of... I mean, I remember great yeah. writing in the yeah. 70s, but nobody ever kept Time Out for obvious there reasons. There was a guy who was in charge of their classical music section. It was he who invited me in to do that. So, you know, I had some... I wasn't just working in independent magazines. I had some connection with, you know, the press. And I'd I'd also started writing for the Sunday Times magazine before Rap Attack. So, you know, that combined with Collusion magazine. I mean, Collusion is interesting because... Collusion was the outcome of music's running its course, music's magazine running its course. Okay. And the feeling that we wanted to do something much broader, that we wanted to, you know, treat everything at the same level. You yeah. Know, whether it's pop music or the most esoteric, marginalised music, it was all going to be the same. It that was, was what really yeah. so excited me about <coughs> Collusion when yeah. I bought. I bought the magazine at Compendium as one bought everything yeah. in those days. Um, and sadly, it was a revelation. We yeah. never got round to approaching Sue Stewart about getting her writing on Rock's yeah. page. She died, yeah. sadly, didn't she? She a few did. Back. Yes. Well, a few years back. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. And her book came out same time as The Rap Attack, of course, Signed, Sealed and Delivered. Yeah. I remember yeah. getting both of those. And I've got my, yeah. my copy of The Rap Attack. Got an original. Sitting yeah. the original Dennis Flute, Flute, cover. Yeah, and... What, what a terrific book that was! I mean, so you, you were getting, very you were very quick on early on the, on the ball on the uptake with hip hop because it, I think it goes back to my aunt's record collection. Yeah, you know, I had that long grounding in African American music, and I'd studied it. You know, when I was a teenager. I mean, I, this is kind of embarrassing, but I gave a talk at school on African American migration from the south. To the, the north. northern cities, and the way that affected the music, yeah, you yeah. know, the transition from country blues to, you know, the electric blues and Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf. And, and so you were, what, 13 at the time? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't 13, I was probably about 15, 16, but, I, you know, there wasn't a single non-white person in my school. Sure. And the idea of giving a talk like that, I mean, I don't know what I thought I was doing, but... You know, I had a passion for the music and I was studying it even at that young age. So by the time hip-hop appeared, I kind of understood where it was coming from. Yeah. You know, the all of the roots of it I pretty much knew about before even getting into researching them. And, I mean, there was another aspect to it too, that I'd been broke for so many years playing music. You know, I thought, I have to do something else. And then my... 30s now, I can't continue. 
you know, impoverished. Yeah. Like this. I have to do something else. And I had this crazy idea that writing a book was, <laughs> you, you know, an answer to that. Well, in a sense it was because it led me into another career of being a journalist. And even though journalism wasn't well paid, it was, you know, I could earn steady money and it was decent. So it was certainly preferable to, you know, working as an improvising musician. But... Rap Attack unlocked that because I went to New York and did all these interviews and yep. went around with Patricia Bates. She was taking the photographs. Yes. And then I came back and I got a call from Paul Rambali and Paul said, we want to run a piece on hip-hop in the face, but none of our writers like it. <laughs> Do you know anybody? And I, it was extraordinary because I said... Well, as it happens, I've just come back from New York and I've interviewed most of the major players, you know, because I'm working on this book. And he said, well, can you write a piece on Electro for us? Electro mm. I remember yeah, that yeah. Piece. being yeah. the name. That was a cover story. It was it? a cover story. It was my first story. and My friend Jay Burnett's territory. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, so it was extraordinary to write this piece and the first piece you write is a cover story. You know, great Neville Brody typographical cover um, and then they said to me we're looking for a regular music writer it, uh, you know columnist do you want to try so I wrote one and they really liked it and they said can you do it every month right and at that time I was working on a television series as a kind of writer researcher and I, I thought oh I can't can I do both you know and <laughs> and I said yes, you know, which, of course, is always the right answer. And, you know, suddenly I was the face music writer, and the face, as you know, was like the most fashionable magazine on the planet. <laughs> back with us. Yeah. And, yeah, back with us, but probably not the most fashionable no. magazine on the planet. No. And obviously that opened so many doors. Yes. Yes, and, I mean, I remember... Because th- I had read the great pieces that you've written in Cluj. I mean, particularly because I was so fascinated by it, I will always remember reading the piece you wrote about the Beach Boys, Charles Manson, just making those Mm. connections. So suddenly to read you on, like, Luther Vandross, I was almost like, is this the same David (laughs) too? And I'd read The Rap Attack, of course, at that point. But you did, yes, I mean... You you wrote a lot of great features for the face on on somewhat I mean Bros being the most <laughs> unlikely subject yeah. really but did you have fun doing those things yeah, absolutely yeah. and I, I was never snobby about pop music no. you know I, and I never I never felt that there was a hierarchy in music mm. you know when I was growing up if you bought books on the history of music which I did. It was always evolutionary stuff, hierarchical stuff, you know. It was always primitive music and then, you know, music of the ancient world and then you go on and on and supposedly it grows in sophistication until you reach the peak of Beethoven. I was always totally against that. Mm. I didn't know why, you know. I had to read anthropology and whatever to learn that. It's very interesting to say that because one of the other pieces we're going to talk about is on Arthur Russell. Mm -hmm. And I've just been reading Frank Owen's interview we've got on our site from Mojimaker yeah. 1987 with Arthur Russell yeah. and he's saying precisely the same thing. Yeah. He was talking about when he was at music school, playing things that he liked to his tutors who was mm. professors and so on and them just saying, that's the worst thing I've ever heard and they really <laughs> saw music absolutely as a rigid series of hierarchies with pop music and particularly dance pop music at the very, very bottom. Well, it was, it was based on racial theory. Yes. It was based on eugenics. Yeah, you know, it was the stuff that Hitler really yeah, absolutely. warned. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, <laughs> people didn't make that connection. No, mm. they didn't make that connection. Yeah. That their condemnatory attitude to pop music was actually very intimately connected with racial yeah. theories. And you know, so I reacted against that as a young person, and then kind of filled in the gaps later of why I was reacting against it. But, no, I never felt snobby. So, you know, Cheryl Garrett said to me, would you go and interview this pop band, Bross? And, I mean, I just found it, even at a kind of anthropological level, really, really interesting. Yes. You know, going to their house, meeting their mum, meeting yes, the stepfather, yeah. the fans outside at the gate. 
and all of that stuff and just hanging out with them and, you know, this weird world that develops and, I mean, it hits people like like, like a thunderbolt. When will I, will I be famous? So to be in that situation where you're seeing it and then, you know, I mean, I, one of the things I value in writing about music is compassion. Mm. A lot of music writers have no compassion, yeah. partly because they have no understanding of how music is made and what it means to be a musician. Mm. Yes. And, you know, so they write a vicious review of, you know, say, I don't know, somebody like Miles Davis, you know, who proved himself a thousand times over, but they would write a vicious review of a record because it wasn't up to scratch. But, you know, you have to understand why these things happen, yeah. you know, to people. And it's the same, you know, young pop stars, they can turn very easily into monsters. Mm. Morrissey is a sort of... Yeah, risible people yes. or, or utterly monstrous. But then, if you haven't been through that process, that you know, being hit by that thunderbolt. Yeah, that's true. Then, you know, you don't really understand why that happens. No. One thing you said in an interview that I really love was, you know, categorising music has a function at the level of retail. Beyond that, why? And even though, obviously, you know, we're running Rock's Back Pages and categorisation and taxonomy inevitably are part of what we do... I'm sort of broadly in, in agreement yeah. with that. I just I think that uh, wonderful things happen right across yes. the spectrum of pop. And yes, there's a little bit of the rock snob in me, but I but I but I love you know pop dance music. I love Dua Lipa. I love mm-hmm. all kinds of sure. we, things. We, and we all love Lizzo at the moment and the rock's back page office. Yeah. 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 So um, I, I personally love the writing about pop. I mean, we've had this conversation before on the podcast. Is that people who can write well about pop are very rare because mm-hmm. it, it's not just music. It's about the, the audience that it's played to and the audience's response mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm, why I'm Caroline well, Sullivan fan, for example. Everything. Yes. That's true of all of it. Well, of course, mm, not just true. pop music. Yeah, that's true. And you write beautifully <laughs> about about everything. As I, as I said earlier, however sort of you know high brow it is or or low brow it is, if we use those terms, and of course we're challenging those terms, but but it's always. It's every sentence is sort of pristine, and there's a there's a takeaway from every sentence you write. I think you actually there's another sentence I just wrote there. The process of criticism is heavily dependent on a rationalisation of subjectivity, mm-hmm. and I can't really argue with that. I suppose the imp- the impetus though is as a writer, you 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 do want to rationalise your subjective love mm-hmm. of of music and if you can do that in a way that is persuasive and mm. encourages somebody to listen to something that they might not otherwise listen to i suppose that is that is job done but you of course have a much wider interest in sonics in in ambience and you know i i can remember another a certain another moment i recall is when ocean of sound came i think i commissioned a review of ocean of sound both the the album the the, the two cd anthology that you put together and and the book when I was at Mojo and I just remember thinking there was it that was extraordinary work and you've done you've, you've created a number of of anthologies I, was, I can't really say enough good about you uh, 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 David <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm struggling to contain my admiration for you really. but you know ambiance in general all, all of that is is very sort of central to your to your approach to music yeah I I think the deeper you dig the more you have to go into those kind of areas, yeah. you know, to understand what you're talking about. And I do believe that, you know, it is all a rationalisation of subjectivity. You know, we have tastes, you know, we have likes and dislikes. We're shaped by the environment we grow up in. And that one of the things about music writing is that that's often unexamined. So people write about their tastes as if it's the law, you know. And I still see that on social media, you know, grown men writing out these kind of lists of things that they say are definitively the best ever. And you think, 
Yeah, you do this when you're sort of 15, <laughs> not, not, not when you're 55. Yes. No, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 I'm absolutely allergic to lists of any sort of description because they're inherently sort of fraudulent. So reductive, mm. of course. Um, no, I mean, you know, I remember as a small child in my parents' car going to our cottage in Suffolk and hearing the four tops on the radio and the sound of particularly Levi Stubbs' voice making the hair stand up in the back of the neck. And I'm a middle-class white English boy at that time. And the, the, it, the, the, kind of the alien nature of this absolutely beautiful music, it was both the fact that it was alien and beautiful, was extraordinarily sort of compelling, which is not a million miles away from your experience with the 78s of... Yeah, Domino. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. You know, it's, I went to a concert at Huddersfield Town Hall weekend before last, and I noticed that appearing soon were Herman's Hermits and the Four Tops. And <laughs> out of curiosity, I looked them both up online, and Herman's Hermits have one original member, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the Four Tops is a tribute band. It's the American Four Tops, and it it made me think about this notion of authenticity, sure. you know, and whether it matters. Yeah. Mm. I mean, obviously, you know, Herman's Hermits, if you look at the photographs, not to be unkind, but there was always something kind of juvenile about yeah, Herman's yeah. Hermits, and so to see this bunch of elderly <laughs> men, that's a stretch, but... I'm reading a really interesting book at the moment which is examining the idea of the black voice. Yeah. You know, and it's saying that there is no such thing and that voices are constructed in communities and by listeners. Yeah. So if you're asking who is this, you're asking the wrong question. Sure. Because you're... I mean, she talks about Jimmy Scott, for example. Yeah. You know, and Mm. the, the strange place he occupies you know, with his his voice. And, I mean, this is something that really interests me. I'm, I'm writing, or actually I'm not writing it, I should be writing it. <laughs> I'm writing a book on Dr John's Grigory album. Oh, wonderful. Because it raises all these mm-hmm. problems of authenticity yeah. and, you know, there's that element of medicine shows and blackface minstrelsy yeah. in the record. You know, there's a lot of very uncomfortable dubious elements to the record, but at the same time, it's entirely original and extraordinary. And, you know, I think you're talking about alien nature of a voice, and of course these voices struck us that way. I mean, one of the most important writers for me when I was young was Paul Oliver, writing about blues, and there's an account by Paul Oliver, you know, during the war him hearing African-American workers in, I think it was Suffolk, and singing like work songs and how, you know, a kind of chill went through mm-hmm. his body. But just because it's alien to us, yes. because of our restricted backgrounds Absolutely. in those days, didn't mean to say it was alien. Of course. Mm. No, no, of course. And I, that I, distinction is that, really, really important. That's absolutely right. And in a sense, that's what I was raising the point about me yeah. being a white middle class English boy yeah. hearing these voices. Yeah, yeah, you know, if yeah, I had been yeah. a Detroit native of either colour, yeah. this would it not would be, be different. Voices. A different experience. Yes. We yeah. said we'd talk briefly about Arthur Russell. Yeah. And one of the pieces of yours were featured on the homepage. Fantastic, Arthur Russell. Is a piece you wrote not long after his. Actually, it's about three years after his death in 1992. Yeah. The reason to to feature this is because there's a there's a new Arthur Russell album, Iowa Dream, that just came out. He's a fascinating example of someone that clearly interests you because he's sort of he, he's he's an unlikely character whose music kind of falls outside of categories yeah. or brings yeah. different yeah. elements yeah. together. Yeah. And you did you were one of the few people to interview him. You did a phone interview with I him. I did for the face. For the face. Okay. So what do you think of all this? I mean there's been two or three new collections of Arthur Russell stuff. Yeah. Which caught a lot of people by surprise because some of it's almost countryish and mm-hmm. he's playing mm-hmm. acoustic guitar and it's not mm-hmm. the guy behind Let's Go Swimming or yeah. is it all over my face. <laughs> Were you caught slightly by surprise by some of this this rather beautiful singer songwriterish music? Some of it, yeah. But you know, when I did that interview, I remember 
World of Echo came out yeah. in the 80s and there's a 12-inch of Let's Go Swimming and Treehouse School Bell came out and I said to Kimberly Luston, who was features editor at that time, I think, maybe, no, oh, I can't remember, anyway, we were married, I said, you know, we should do a piece about this guy. They come out through rough trade, so it was easy to set up an interview. So I did a phoner, and, you know, he was very nervous and shy, but mm. so interesting. And some of those quotes went into Ocean of Sound. Yeah. I knew Steve Knutson, who's released all of this Arthur Russell stuff, through Tommy Boy. Right. You know, because, because of Rap Attack and after Rap yeah, Attack, yeah. I had a close... Connection with Tommy Boy. And of course, Arthur Russell co founded Sleeping Bag Records, which was another New York hip hop label. Yeah, and uh, when I was in New York researching Rap Attack, I went to the loft and I met Steve DeQuisto and, you know, who Arthur had worked with. And so, you know, I was figuring out this kind of network of associations with him. And obviously, he had performed at the kitchen, you know, so. It, you know, we were both kind of avant-gardists in a way yeah. uh, as well. So it's this interesting sort of overlap between yeah. the world of sort of avant-garde free music and disco club music. Yes. Yeah. Steve, yeah. Reich, Steve Reich claims that actually his take, his version of minimalism was very influential on disco. I mean, he's... Uh, he's probably, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. But, but, you know... Does he? But, but yes, but... Well, it's rubbish, but he... Well, no, no, but he sees... He sees a connection between the two the two areas of music. He was quoted early on in his career as, as talking about Junior Walker and the All-Stars, and Junior Walker and the All-Stars were also a big influence on Terry Riley. Right. So, yeah, there is a connection there. You learn and, something new every day. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Martha and the Vandellas. You, you know, these these people... Yeah. Motown was influential, I would say, on the minimalists, or some of them, anyway. Steve Reich and Terry Riley. So that's true. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think... I mean, I wrote a piece called Black Minimalism for The Wire, when was it, last year? And I was making the point that minimalism and repetition in African-American music was scorned in the early 70s. There are reviews I still have, you know, very negative reviews about, for example, James Brown saying this music is stupid. But it was celebrated by the minimalists as being innovatory. Mm. But it came from, to some degree... You know, either African-American music or Indian music or or Javanese music or whatever. So, you know, there's an imbalance of perception, which again comes back to these race theories. Yes. And and, and again, going going back to Arthur Russell, is that he could as happily spend two or three days in the studio with Larry LeVan cutting what he would regard as a disco track and doing stuff with tape machines and echo units in his loft of a completely different nature and for him there was no no separation between the when, when I was researching my book about the Woodstock Bearsville scene small town talk I discovered that Arthur as a, really quite a young guy had been up mm-hmm. to this extraordinary like experimental slash jazz scene that, that existed yeah. up there you, I'm sure you'll know about it well, I, I went there myself you were there yourself did you? yeah yeah, yeah okay yeah. how interesting yeah. in, in the early 70s? Ish? No, in um, 79. 79. 79, how interesting. 79, yeah, and stayed there. Well, and... So, so uh, Arthur went up there um, and played cello accompanying Alan Ginsberg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very and they became great friends afterwards. They did become great friends. Yeah. Um, I hear that, well, Tim Lawrence, who wrote a recent biography of, of Russell, Russell mm. says there are hours and hours of material still that he recorded, he he tended he he had a slight habit of not finishing things or yeah. finding it difficult yeah. to finish things, and I suspect there's going to be quite a lot more. We'll we'll, we'll see mm. the light of day over coming mm. years. Mm. I mean, there's always a question: Should it? Because it's he's dead and he hasn't sanctioned its release, and did he think feel it's releasable? But I kind of suspect, given the nature of what he does, 
that actually it, it, it would be legitimate. Well, if someone did it with care. One of the things I liked about his music, almost all of his music, is that it had this unfinished quality. Uh-huh. So if you listen to those club records, like Let's Go Swimming, yeah. you know, which he did with Walter Gibbons, closely with Walter Gibbons, they have this openness to them, this flow to them, which is unique. You feel they could go in any direction, and they often did. You know, the instrumentation was very unusual. Everything about them was unusual, but they felt like notes, but not notes towards a finished product. They felt like, these are my notes, and you'll keep getting my notes. And, you know, he did different versions of songs, the same song in different ways. Mm. I like that because, you know, to me that's, you know, the idea of the finished object goes against the nature of music in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, music is a very fluid, intangible um, substance, if you like. Mm-hmm. And so it lends itself to that sense of being unfinished. We could, and we probably should, looking at the clock, flow out of that into maybe just a little bit of discussion about an artist, a mysterious figure, who has featured in The the Wire, the magazine you've written a lot for and it's written about you for many years. And I'm talking about the young man whose sort of norm de musique is burial, William Emmanuel Bevan who gave himself the name Burial when he started making tracks in the the early noughties. There's a new hyperdub anthology out this week of tracks from the last eight years. And I just really wanted to note that because I think he is absolutely extraordinary. I I know that he is the sort of armchair dubstep guy that sort of (laughs) middle-aged or or beyond (laughs) middle-aged music critics can can relate to in some way because because we bring all that investment and this idea of genius and having said that I do think he is a genius I think the two albums that he made and a lot of the tracks he made are among the most extraordinary and beautiful and heartbreaking exquisitely sad and yet rhythmically thrilling music I've ever heard in my life and are you a fan do you, are you aware of Burial's music do you listen to it I'm certainly aware of it. Yeah. I like his titles. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, titles like Subtempo and... Dog Shelter. S- stolen Dog. I, I like all those. I, my feeling is he's a bit overrated. Do you think? I, I think he has a talent for creating an atmosphere, often with unusual elements. And then for me it gets a bit stagnant. So I can listen to it with an appreciative ear. But it doesn't really fire me up that much, Okay, to be honest. And I think I often like things to be a bit, I mean, crude, is that the word? I mean, roughness I like quite often. Let's not say I don't like very smooth things, because I like, I love 70s soul more than almost anything else in the world, but... We have a piece on the stylistics by you on Rock's Back Page. Yeah, that's right. We worship the stylistics. Yeah, well, I worship the stylistics. But, yeah, again, it comes down to this question of taste and asking yourself why it is you love something or why it is you're slightly reacting against it. Mm -hmm. And these are very difficult questions. I think, you know, he has become a, a poster boy for theorists. Yes. And so I tend to have a slight allergic reaction to that because I think, in fact, what that does is reintroduce this idea of the individual genius. Yes. And I'm always reacting against that, always, always, always. I totally get that. On the other hand, he does draw on so many sort of disparate elements in the way he makes makes his essentially makes his music on a, on a computer sure famously using the, the sound forge technology um, yeah I like it it's it's, it's good it's he, he's like dubstep's version of 
you know, Brian Wilson. Well, no, 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 <laughs> not at all. No, no, that's a that's a very different story, and I won't I won't accept that because <laughs> I think Brian Wilson had so many talents in so many different areas. Mm. You know, it was extraordinary. You know, the capacity to write pop songs, which mm. can last and last and last and still move you, but also work in a very experimental way when it was, you know, forbidden, really. You know, everything was against him. So that's a very different story. But, no, I was going to say the equivalent of Fotek in drum and bass. Mm. You know, this very smart, sophisticated music, very well done, very, very interesting and, you know, Fotek sort of fizzled out. I think he went, started making film music in America or something. But, you know, it has a kind of promise, but then it, after a while it doesn't deliver on it. But that's personal. It's hmm. not criticism. No. It's personal. Bevan talks about Fotek in the long interview he did with Mark Fisher, the late Mark Fisher. Uh, there's, there's just, to me, fascinating, the unedited transcript of the interview that Fisher did with with Burial, with Mark, with William Bevan, I think is is remarkable. I mean, he's, he's uh, to me, he's really, really fascinating and talks about, talks a lot about sadness. And I think that's probably mm-hmm. what I respond to in the music is, is, yeah. is the sad. I mean, because do I respond to a lot of, I don't know, two-step, dubstep, UK garage, all that stuff? It, it, no, I didn't. And the, there is something emotionally in in this music that that just just gets me. Yeah. It just gets me. Very melancholy. Um, yeah. There's a long anthemic track called Come Down to Us, which I think is is pretty mm-hmm. phenomenal. Anyway, well that's out and we have a few burial pieces, not many. He's done almost no interviews. Yeah, we just got three pieces, including Simon Reynolds, uh, a long piece about untrue. You might say this is the ultimate kind of Simon Reynolds album. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, um, he called Untrue, which is the second album, the most important electronic album of the century so far. I don't know about importance and we would probably challenge that. I do think it's probably... Quite challenging, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want to read more about David Toop's, you know, challenging of importance and hierarchies, which I recommend you do. You can't do better than buying any of his books. The new one is, as I say, Inflamed Invisible, Collected Writings on Art and Sound, 1976-2018. If you want a slightly more personal version, Flutter, Echo, Living with, Within Sound, these are both published this year. Inflamed Invisible is, is out kind of this week, isn't it? Sort of, yeah. Um, published by Goldsmith. It's been just fabulous talking with you about all of this, David. Please, will you stick around? And if you feel like jumping in at any point in the rest of what we talk about, you know, don't hesitate. Thank um, you. I'm going to hand proceedings over to Mark at this point. He's going to tell us about the new audio interview. Yeah, this is your interview, Barney, with Joe Smith, who died a couple of days ago, three days ago. December 2nd, I believe he died. Right, who was the basically the boss of Warner's during the golden era of the mid-60s to late 70s and early 80s. Subsequent to that, he... Well, uh, he moved across to Electra as part of the the overall merger and... Ended up at Capital in the 80s. After a a bit of a gap, he went back to Capital. I mean, he's an interesting guy because he was the the man in the suit, the man in the blazer, while Mo Austin was like the man hanging out with the groovy cat. But... You could say that Joe Smith was the man who created the environment in which Warners became a really startlingly brilliant label with a specific sort of West Coast, Los Angeles view. And you're very much asking him about the whole Laurel Canyon scene, the, the, the Troubadour, where he says he actually lived in the Troubadour for years, how he saw the changing attitudes of rock and roll in the 60s. He started off as a DJ on the East Coast, is Yeah, that in correct? Boston, where he was from. Uh, and then at a point where either rock and roll was actually sneered at or just generally disregarded as being an important thing to the point where when he was going to talk in Congress, the the very Congress people he was talking to were themselves rock and roll fans. It was that sort of 
step changes of generations. And he talks also about sort of the power of the artist. We can listen to a clip now where he's explaining how Warners could let Joni... Mitchell. Joni Mitchell make a record of and about with Charlie Mingus. When Charlie speaks of Lester, you know someone great has gone. The sweetest swinging music man. Well, power was never our mission. Again, that's self-serving. But I remember telling Van Morrison, look, you fired eight managers, 12 producers, your bands. You can't fire me. I hold the contract. You're going to make records. You're going to have to make it. And that's the way it is. So uh, make peace with me. Uh, we'll disagree. Uh, but we never argued over content. Somebody once asked me, Joni Mitchell made this uh, Charles Mingus album. And they did a big story in Rolling Stone, and they interviewed me. They said, how did you allow her to do it? They said, you don't allow Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell wants to make the Vegas album. She makes it. She's not going to be happy it doesn't sell. She'll make a more commercial album next time, more approachable album next time. But that's Joni Mitchell. I can't, uh, I can't tell Joni Mitchell what to do. And uh, with the Eagles, it was just getting these people to make records. And there's black babies dancing to Yeah, you can hear him lean into the microphone. I, 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 <laughs> he's very interesting about his his other industry colleagues. We'll listen to a clip at the end of the podcast where he talks about having David Geffen shouting at him down the telephone and about how you never believed a word Irving Azoff ever said to you <laughs> whilst liking him tremendously. Mm. He's fantastically rude about J.D. South, a pain in the ass. It's a very interesting snapshot of... The music period. I think the saddest thing is he talks about the end when he went to Capital and he had to actually force Capital to start making CDs because Capital Records thought CDs were going to be a passing fad. <laughs> but he realised the industry had changed so much from the way it had been in his Warner Brothers years. Mm. So it, it, it's good stuff. Yeah, I mean, I interviewed Joe a couple of times. Once was 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 about that the holiday scene and, and Warner Reprise, which which was a big passion of mine. I think one can say that Joe was the more the more corporate half of the Mo and Joe act. I mean, Mo the, Austin was probably, although he'd been an accountant and Joe had been a disc jockey. Yeah. Actually, Mo was was the more unusual yeah, of the two. Joe sure. was a bit more kind of convivial, corporate, yeah. hail fellow, well met. I mean, there's a fabulous story that he tells himself, not in this interview, of when he went to sign the Grateful Dead. He actually went to San Francisco <laughs> to see them playing the Fillmore. It had been '67 when they signed the Dead, and. He, went, he was wearing a blazer. His wife was wearing a twin set and pearls. <laughs> uh, someone had warned him, don't accept anything to drink off this band because mm. it will be spiked. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so so he, he's there, they are parched with thirst, trying to make friendly with the hippies. And, yeah. and he, he, he acknowledges that he himself, he was that guy in the blazer, you know. Yeah, he, he definitely was. He wasn't um, in any way a house hippie, but... You know, he and Mo did facilitate a lot of pretty remarkable music, yeah. and they allowed, in the way he talks about Journey, they, they well, they didn't, he challenges the word allow, but you think about the fugs on reprise, you think about Van Dyke Parks's first two albums, you, you think about the opportunities yeah. they gave to some not obviously yeah. well, pop, pop, well, commercial acts. They gave little feet. A bunch of albums, mm. none of which sold, mm. you know. He's got this great story on this interview um, that he is in charge of that tour that you saw, the show, the Doobie Brothers mm. and the Little Feet at the R Rainbow. Mm. Uh, it's a 75. Mm. He says they're in Amsterdam, and he gives a speech to the entire touring party. Germany has fine prisons. They're comfortable, the food is good, and you'll be in one of them if you try and cross this border carrying anything. And one of the doobies comes up to Martha and says, a million and a half bucks worth of drugs has just been flushed down the laboratory. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's, it's good stuff. Yeah, he talks about his relationships with, with like James Taylor, Carly Simon and so forth. He's very funny about their wedding, yes. isn't he? Is that on, on, it was basically a sort of wedding of two halves. There were these very sort of there were the, the wasps over on that the side, and, and 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 the Jews on the other side. <laughs> and, he, and they wouldn't kind of go 
come yeah. together. And, and the Jews were sophisticated, sort of. Yeah, well, they uh, were the, uh, the, the, the Simon and Schuster. Yeah, exactly. Family, so, the yeah. metropolitan sophisticates and the tailors are somewhat more close to the land. Mm. And <laughs> yeah. It's extraordinary. It's just good stuff. Do you uh, have any fondness for that era of kind of Southern California music? The, the I, Calico Mafia, <laughs> as someone once termed them. I'm a great admirer of Crosby, Stills and Nash. Okay. Yeah, and uh, that persists. Well, that's probably something that not everyone would have known about David. Too. No, probably, <laughs> probably not. No, probably not. It's good of you to admit it. Yeah, I was actually I was playing with Thurston Moore in Manchester recently, okay. and, and when you travel with Thurston, he always buys rock magazines. You know, and he sort of gives you one. So we were sitting on the train together and, you know, there was yet another piece about Crosby Stilson. Yeah, there is that. <laughs> and, you know, I kind of find it fascinating, but I do like the music a lot, yeah. Mm. And, yeah, Johnny Mitchell, I like not all of her stuff, but some of it. So, mm. yeah, there's something about that. In fact, Thurston and I did a, a little tour in California last year okay. where we drove to Big Sur from San Francisco and then we played a Big Sur at night and then we drove to Los Angeles. And for me it was like, I don't know, some kind of romantic dream, you know, travelling that highway and yeah. going to all those places and every place you stop, Thurston has to go to the bookstores and the record stores to buy <laughs> more poetry and more records. And, you know, it was... It was being in like a kind of dream. And I, I know all that stuff is gone, you know. I mean, I know it's... That's why it's a dream. It's, yeah, and mm. uh, but, yeah, yeah, there was an element of that in my past, for And sure. Thurston now lives in North London, as you do, doesn't he? Yeah, he yeah. does. Yeah. yeah. So he's now a Londoner, really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, great. We will hear another clip, won't we, later? We'll, we'll hear yes. Joe talking about... David Geffen, his, uh, his how he handled his charming approach, David. Um, but we'll just yeah, scoot through some. I'll scoot through, of... through a few of the pieces I've looked at. The melody makers have a thing called Blind Date, where they'd get a current act to review the singles of of the week. And in November '66, the Four Tops were on a blind date. Mortifyingly, the record they like the most is Neil Diamond's I Got the Feeling. Um, <laughs> Ronaldo, oh, it's those guys who just hang on Sloopy. The three of them, oh no, oh yes, oh yes, that's a smash hit. Lawrence, is that a hit, man? It's that Neil Diamond guy, isn't it? Ronaldo, a very big record in the States, no doubt. Lawrence, this might be a number one. Abdul, <laughs> he writes his own stuff too. Ronaldo, this guy's got his own groove, very big artist. Lawrence, our new one's got this kind of sound. Reach out and I'll be there. Was, was mixed Eastern and Spanish, but the new one goes into a more Spanish thing. Levi, it's Ephus, man. Ephus. Wow. Now, Ephus, I assume, is some of the biggest compliment they can give. Later on, they refer to another track as being Wallafant, i.e. not much good. <laughs> so they've got this kind of fantastic <laughs> language. They have made rather good music Reader's Letter to KRLA Beat, October 67. This is from a Supremes fan who's been saying, why aren't you writing about the Supremes? She says, the rest of your beat about the psychedelic and flower power groups stunk. No paper or magazine should write about those groups whose members have been picked up on dope charges, the Rolling Stones, <laughs> or groups like whose members take LSD, the Beatles. The psychedelic movement is truly repulsive. The hippers are only proving what ugly, stupid SOBs they are, protesting against society with all their lovins and terrible clothes. What do you feel about the morals of these hippies and psychedelic groups? That's how a reader's left of K R L A P. That's her way of so his way of saying, listen to the Supremes. <laughs> yes. Her way of saying this her is way of... Um, live review of Mott Hoople, the marvellously named Ray Fox Coming for a disc in seventy two. Our favourite name drawing uh, uh, Ray Fox. Ray Fox Coming. And uh, this this is when they've just been Bowie eyes, all the young dudes just bowing a hit. He says, Then there's the act. Mott have always been sharp dressers but now they've definitely moved into the camp camp. <laughs> there's, there's, there's Hunter, hair ultra bolonesque and lightened, question mark, dressed all in black with a see-through shirt and, of course, the inevitable shades. 
over and what's with ash grey hair, heavy eye makeup and winged thigh boots, prancing about like some butch bardo, and Mick <laughs> Ralph's doing all kinds of naughty things to Overend with his guitar. I, mean, I, must admit, I remember when they became Bowie Eyes. I'd just seen them the year before at the Albert Hall, and they were absolutely solid rock and roll, greasy rock and roll. rock band. You know, yeah. And suddenly they were kind of, was, was, it was a bit slightly jarring, a bit like, some, what, what does someone say about... Sweet, it was like oh, so hot, the brickies hot, in eyeliner. That's right. Carries <laughs> <Hot laughs> <carries in eyeliner. laughs> Very interesting, Paolo Hewitt interview with Luther Vandross from the Enemy in 1985, where. You really get the sense of how oddly vulnerable Luther is, and mm-hmm. how, how very different he was as, as a male soul star. I would personally say he was closer to Smokey Robinson's than any other mm-hmm. soul singer. Mm-hmm. As a male soul singer, he says people tend to see me platonically, very fraternally. They don't last. I just don't get that. I don't get the feeling that that's what it is. Mm. And that, that's about that, right. Well. I have to ask David because I know you interviewed Luther Vandross. Does that accord with your memory of interviewing? Yeah, I interviewed him in Atlanta. I interviewed him in his hotel suite and then carried on interviewing him when he was getting makeup done for his show. Yeah. And there were certain things he wouldn't talk about, you know, understandably, mm. because he had this secret. Yeah. You know? And I think that made him extremely vulnerable because. A lot of his audience was, I don't know... Women who probably did lust after. Yeah, middle-aged women who, you know, their affections, I suppose, were ambiguous. A desire to kind of embrace him in, you know, with mixed, for mixed motivations. Mm. So he was quite guarded. So I remember talking to him about wrestling. He was a huge wrestling fan. <laughs> he, he loved wrestling and he, he loved, he played Pac-Man and Miss Pac-Man. So he told me great stories about playing Miss Pac-Man with like Dion Warwick and stuff. And, you know, but with somebody like that, you always sense that you're not really getting close to them at all. Uh, yeah. the, 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 for very good reasons. Uh, yeah. They they have a firewall around them. Yeah, yeah. You know, but he he did have a softness to him, so I understand that. Yeah, that connection with Smokey Robinson, that that type of singer, yeah, sort of almost neutrality, a sort of ambiguous, sexually ambiguous neutrality. Yes, or, um, yes. I yeah. mean, it, well, the falsetto thing yeah. again is is very very interesting. Uh, I mean, Paolo here it's quite. Obviously, Paolo Hewitt was bringing a certain amount of his own baggage to this. This is soul men should be X, Y, and Z. They should be. They should have, a, they should have toughness, and their lyrics should say oh, something dear. to the, the people. You know, um, and, and, and Luther's just not going to do that. He says, no. "I was never one to need to have a podium to speak from. Music is not an expression for me of my values in life." You know, he's basically saying, "Go away." No, sorry, Paolo. You know. Yeah, you know, yeah. there's something else. This is about something else, and I do it for different. I reasons. mean, Vandross really was about. It was about music. He 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 took his music and the art and craft of it extremely yeah. seriously. You know, and I think it. I think it stands up very well. Yeah, I'm, we're, we're yeah. certainly both huge. No, I, I did fans. a compilation called Sugar and Poison. Yes, of, I wanted um, to ask you about that earlier. Yeah, yeah. Some, mostly a lot of 70s soul, but I did have some more recent things in it, and one of them was Luther singing a song called The Other Side of the World. Yeah. And that track is so dreamy. It, yeah. It's almost about death, you know. It's almost a kind of ambient music. It really is, isn't it? It just drifts and... Yeah. You think, what is he talking about? Yeah. You know, and it, in a way, it came as no surprise that he died so young. You yeah. Know, it, yeah. And, and it's also expressing some of his feeling about music. Yeah. You that know, might be just, the greatest track he ever did. Oh, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, it's fantastic. Uh, uh, Hass not a home, I'd say. Yeah, yeah his background yeah. work yeah. Is, yeah. Is, is tremendous. Extraordinary. Yeah. The other side yeah. of the world, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. I think I, I interviewed him once and I seem to remember him talking about recording that and yeah. how it was. The studio was completely dark. Yeah. It was like yeah. midnight, and he just got completely lost in it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I remember being very struck by that. There was love, there was love, there was love on the other 
what's next, Marco? Well, very briefly, really marvellous Pete Silverton piece on the record YMCA. This is from the Observer in 97. And it's very badly titled. We were talking earlier about, before we started this podcast, about sub-editors and the damage they can do. This, uh, <laughs> this is entitled YMCA Y. And then the, the strap line is the, the song that, you know, the worst songs that you know, everyone can't dance to. Something along those lines. It's basically a mocking title. It's actually a really serious piece about the guys who wrote it, about the makeup of the band, mm. about its place in the gay world it's as an expression of gayness. And it, it's really, really worth reading. I mean, I, th- I think it's an exceptionally p- good piece of writing about all of those things. And there's a great quote from Neil Tennant, Pet Shop Boys. He says, At the time, I wasn't involved in the gay scene. I had a girlfriend. I found clones positively terrifying. Village people probably delayed my coming out for several years. (laughs) 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 Which is just fantastic. (laughs) But I I really, really recommend that we we all read this piece. It's it's, it's a very, very thoughtful thing. The very sad thing about these two Italian, Franco-Italians, writers, one of whom died of AIDS himself, Mm. and uh, also about what happened to the band and so on and so forth. It's good stuff. I think we're out of time, actually. Um, I think it's time to wrap up and (coughs) thank David again so much for coming in. Thank you for. Um, Is there anything you you weren't able to say that you'd like to say? say (laughs) (laughs) This is your last shot. A a sweeping gnomic statement of some kind. No, I I tend to try to avoid sweeping statements. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think the particular is very important. So. You know, Mark, you're talking about this piece about the village people, you know, it's so detailed, and I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. I love the particular, because I think that actually gives us far greater insights into how things work and, you know, how they're understood yeah. than vast cosmic pronouncements. Yes. I mean, it's interesting, Vince Saletti's interview for the piece, and Vince Saletti was a great disco Yeah, writer. no, I, I very much admired yes. Vince Saletti's writing and, and in the he, 70s. And he talks about how... YMCA was had no part in the gay scene at that time, but he yeah. thinks actually that it did have an importance to yeah. to, to it yeah. in, in a broader sense. It's, sure. it's, it's very good. I'll shut up about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a, a great pleasure, been brilliant, honour brilliant. speaking with you, David. And yeah, once again, go buy David's books and David's records and everything else to do with David too. Um, <laughs> we, we, go, go, we, go and see him crunching up crisp packets yes. on, on a stage somewhere in London. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, will, it will completely change the way you think about, interpret and consume music, that's for sure. We'll be back next week talking about something altogether more kind of... <laughs> Well, what can I say? Sort of retro-fetishist, to use a term I heard the other day. We'll actually be talking about The Clash with Chris Needs. Yeah. He's going to come in and talk about London Calling and, and all of that blokey stuff that we're quite ambivalent about, aren't we? So yes. we'll see. We'll see what we have to say about <laughs> London Calling. Which I see you talk about Burial being overrated. I think London Calling may be the most overrated rock record ever made. Yeah. How's that for you? Uh, um, <laughs> so, so we'll see where we go with the clash next week. Thanks, and uh, we're going to go. We'll see you sk- soon. I hope. Yeah, we're going to go out with a clip. David Geffen's phone calls to Joe Smith. <laughs> this is good stuff. And yeah, we'll see you next week. Yeah, very Smith. many thanks to David for coming in. It's been brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you. Very Thank much. you. Bye. Bye. Capital was putting out a soundtrack to a picture, uh, some heavy metal picture, and they had Guns N' Roses in, in the cast. And the artwork, which I'd never seen, uh, oh, yeah. it, uh, featuring Guns N' Roses, which is Dirty Pool, and I never would have allowed it, but he starts, how could you do this to me? How could you do this? How could you do it with friends? You know that's not done. I said, what are you talking about? He says, you've done that album, heavy metal. I said, David, I'm in here in San Francisco. I haven't seen it. He says, you can't do this to me. And I'm seeing the rest of the guys looking at me. It does not look good to have the president of your company be yelled at.
So I said, David, stop following me. I'll be back tomorrow. And he saw me. You can't do it. I hung up. Called again. <laughs> and he started, why'd you hang up on me? I said, because you're yelling at me. Stop hollering at me. I, not, I hung up on him again. <laughs> so, no, he's uh, volatile. Oh, yeah, but that's, that's part of the strategy. Everybody's in it for their own gain. You can't please them all. There's always somebody calling you down. That was Joe Smith in conversation with Barney Hoskins in 2003, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest David Toop, whose new book, Inflamed Invisible, is published by Goldsmith's Press and out now. Find his blog at davidtoopblog.com. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. Thanks to everyone who ended our giveaway. The results have been announced via email. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. (laughs) 